You're listening to the Outdoor Photography Podcast, episode 45. Today, award-winning photographer and educator John Barclay joins us on the show to chat about creating personally meaningful and expressive images and a whole lot more. So stay tuned. Hi, I'm Brenda Petrella, the creator of Outdoor Photography School. Join me as I sit down with top landscape and nature photographers and outdoor industry experts to chat about creativity, composition, photography tips and techniques, essential gear, safety in the outdoors, respect for nature, and so much more. Tune in every week to learn how to create compelling and impactful images while exploring and enjoying the natural world. Welcome to the Outdoor Photography Podcast. Hello, my friends, Brenda Petrella here, here to help you create better images and reconnect with nature. I'm really excited to share with you my conversation with John Barclay. But before we do, just a quick note that today's episode is brought to you by the Outdoor Photography School Digest. The OPS Digest is the newsletter that I send out on the last Friday of the month that contains a summary of all new OPS content. So like this podcast, articles, videos, other tips and resources that I think will help you with your photography, whether that's any new OPS courses or workshops or other helpful photography resources. We also have a featured photographer whose work I think you would enjoy learning about, and I share any photography or outdoor industry offers or deals that may be useful. I call the OPS Digest your monthly dose of photography information and inspiration. And if that sounds like something you would enjoy reading, you can sign up for the newsletter for free through the link in the show notes or at outdoorphotographyschool.com forward slash newsletter. So after editing an interview, I often find myself thinking, now this was my favorite interview so far. <laughs> and after 20 or so interviews, I've come to realize that it's not that one interview has outdone another, but that each conversation has its own golden nuggets of information that can help us grow as outdoor photographers. And this one with John Barclay is no different. John and I have been following each other on Instagram for a little while now, and his name has come up multiple times as someone I should have on the show. I've also admired John's presentations on photography and creativity through the Nature Photographers Network and at the Out of Chicago Live Conference. And so I was very much looking forward to our chat. Incidentally, I will be an instructor at this year's Out of Chicago Live Conference in early March, and I'll put a link in the show notes so that you can learn more about that. Anyway, before we roll the interview, let me give you a brief bio on John. John Barclay is an award-winning freelance photographer based in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. John is a passionate photographer and an enthusiastic workshop leader. He is also an inspirational speaker presenting his program, Dream, Believe, Create, to audiences all around the world. John's work has been published in a number of books and magazines and is treasured by a number of private collectors. Recently, John was the recipient of an Excellence Award from B&W Magazine and was chosen by DeWitt Jones to participate in his HealingImages.org program. John is respected for his processing knowledge and well-known for his Topaz and Nick Software webinars. And so without further ado, please enjoy this inspiring conversation with John Barclay. John, welcome to the Outdoor Photography Podcast. Thank you so much for making the time to join us on the show today. Finally, Brenda. Yes, it's been a little work in progress. Yeah, it's been a little work. You know, the silly little dog that we have who's causing troubles. But thank you for being patient with me, Brenda. Absolutely. It's, it's, a, it's a joy to be here. I've been following you and loving what you're doing. And you have Thank some you. guests that are friends of mine. Yes. So hopefully I can rise up to the level of the quality of talent that you're attracting, Brenda. Oh, Thank you I'm, for having me. Of course. And I'm sure you will. <laughs> and I'm so glad that your dog is doing well. As a, as a fellow dog owner, I understand the relationship there. So yeah, that, Well, yeah. they're family members. Absolutely. Plain and simple. They really are. Yeah. yeah. Thank yep, you for Absolutely. That. Yeah. Um, so, so many aspiring and, and hobbyist photographers would see someone like you who has had this long and successful career in photography, and they may feel that some of these accomplishments might be 
out of reach, but we've all started from somewhere. And so I was wondering if you could, you know, maybe take a moment, bring us back to the early days and, and tell us how you even began your journey into photography. I said, oh gosh, my wife will kill me if I tell the whole story. (laughs) (laughs) She'd be in the corner over here going, Mm -hmm. John, just like like the short version, honey, the short <laughs> version. So it actually started with my wife. Uh, Did it? That's what that. Yeah. So, gosh, I, you know, I wish I could remember. You get as old as I am, and you forget stuff. I want to say in the in the nineties. So let's let's say late nineties. Okay. And my wife came to me at Christmas time, bought me at that time a film camera because we hadn't had digital yet. Yeah. And in it was a note, and there's an argument as to whether this is true or not. And I think it's true. (laughs) (laughs) But at least it's the best I remember it. She says it's a little embellished, and I don't know why she would feel that way. (laughs) That never happens. That would never, I would never (laughs) embellish anything. She says there was, I said rather, there was a note in there that says, and I was in the medical device world, right? So I had my own business selling in the medical device world. And so she said, you're cranky and you need balance in your life. Because <laughs> I, I didn't ask for a camera. It wasn't something I was looking for. It was like, what the heck did I get a camera for for Christmas? Right. What, you know? That's and funny. now she knew as a kid. So if we have to go back one step before that, my dad built me a darkroom. So that's where my passion started. Oh, wow. He built a darkroom for me in high school. And I used it to bring my girlfriend over into oh. the dark room. And then he said, no, no, this is an enlarger. This is what you do. You like shine light down and you, oh, that's what, I, no, that's not true. Right. So, but I found the two and a quarter negatives in the basement in an old uh, plastic pellet. He was in the plastics business. It was where he stored stuff from the military. And I went, what the heck are these? Well, they're negatives, son. Well, what do you do with the negative? And that led it. But then you oh, fast forward to, to the 90s where I had that dark room. I didn't do anything. We were raising a family. That was what was important. But mm-hmm. my wife, and it's true, said you're cranky and you need some balance in your life. Okay, so obviously that doesn't answer any of the questions that you had. I mean, it does sort of. But, <laughs> yeah. but, but, but the, the important thing is, you know, my wife saw as women – or typically do, they see things that men, men, we just kind of go along doing our job, right? We're not paying attention. And and our wives (laughs) see what's really going on. I mean that truthfully. And so she saw that and I needed that. So I started taking workshops at that time with the wonderful, late, great Nancy Rotenberg, who was one of the greatest humans I've ever met in my lifetime. And she took me under her wing and called me and loved me up until... To this I do remember. 2004, she said, I'm not going to do workshops in the Poconos anymore. I want you to take over, to which I said, I've never taught a workshop in my life. I'm not a very good photographer, which was true, because <laughs> her response was, you're adequate. <laughs> <laughs> But that's when she said to me something really important because your job as a as a workshop leader is not to be the best photographer. That's not what your job is. Your job is to give them a great experience, right? And yeah. so that started my journey because I was kicked into it. I said no three times. And she said, Nope, I already signed you up. Sorry, you're doing wow. it. <laughs> yeah. Well, she said, You're born to do this, you don't know it yet. And that's exactly exactly what she said. And she was right because I fell in love with teaching. I fell in love with helping people. That's what I love to do, honestly. I love to help people. And now it's way more refined down the road. So getting back to your question, you know, it like any creative pursuit, Brenda, it's hard. Right. Mm -hmm. Especially if your self-talk, which is me, Mm -hmm. was I'm not a creative person. I'm not an artist. I can't make a stick figure. So how on earth can I do photography? That's hard. And so that creative tapping into that creative was incredibly hard for me. Not as hard for a lot of other people, but I'm sure it is for a lot of other people. Uh, But that's where Nancy was so incredibly helpful because she taught me to believe that I was creative. I just didn't recognize it yet and tapped into that yet so and, it, the, and was she teaching you uh landscape photography at that point or was it all genres of photography and, and no really- good question she nancy was a brilliant macro photographer okay. so her workshops tend to be more macro focused with nature right so mm-hmm. it was all flowers all macro stuff in the woods wherever right so it was nature 
but focused on macro. Uh, and then eventually um, that led to me going on a trip uh, to South Africa with Nancy to to be with the great legendary Freeman Patterson. Oh, wow. Who's, who's become a friend, right? So Freeman changed my world, right? And going on that that workshop was so valuable. And to be there with Nancy, my hero, right, and my mentor, and then I'll, I should say my mentor, and then go with my hero, Freeman Patterson, who I couldn't believe I was going to study with in South Africa, that was huge. So just let me get back again, because I, I do tend to ramble on and on. Sorry, Brenda. Oh, um, no, you're doing great. So your question, was it about just photography in general, or was it getting to just, just rephrase, get me back on track, Brenda? Yeah, I just wanted to know how, how you how you ended up with a camera in your hand in the early days. Um, okay, good. I've done that. Yeah, great. You've done that. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that's good. Because, you know, so many people come with, from different backgrounds to get different starts. And I think it's always interesting to know, especially when you see someone who who has done a lot with their career so far in photography, it's almost sometimes hard to remember those early days. And, you know, we all start from going from no camera in hand to a camera in hand. And, and how do we grow from that point on? I think right. it's really interesting. So yeah, okay. absolutely. And the growth part happens. And yeah, I lead photography workshops. So I get it, but it's really not a plug, but I took a lot of workshops from various different people. And that's what really helped because you're immersed in it at that point with whatever, nine other students and hopefully a leader who's a good leader. Right. Um, and she or he can help you kind of along that path but uh that's what helps that's what helped me tremendously in in that growth yeah well and you also mentioned how much um nancy saw in you this inner teacher that that wanted to come out which was is a really great insight on her part and, and it's a blessing huge yeah yeah and so and i understand that now you are leading workshops all over the world from hawaii yeah. to namibia to the yellow knife and the smokies so there's all over the place. Yeah. Um, and you have sort of two types of workshops. You have regular photography workshops, and then you also have these uh, contemplative photography workshops. And so I was wondering if you could tell us about what is your approach to teaching? And then maybe you can also tell us how your contemplative workshops are different from your regular ones. Sure. And we'll, I'll, I'll add a little word in there. It's a contemplative, and we made it a very, uh, conscious choice that used what did we do? we started off calling it something else what did we call it? and we changed it to contemplative photography retreat ah, and the okay. reason we we called it a retreat was we were inviting people to retreat from how they approached photography mm. interesting right yeah. so so i do this with Another, and I keep using this phrase, great humans, but they, these are, these honestly, these two people, Nancy Rotenberg, and then I lost her to cancer back in 2011, and that was devastating. And then Flint Sparks came into my life uh, because I was leading a workshop with DeWitt Jones and Ricky Cook and that group at the, the Hui Ho'olana in Molokai, Hawaii. And and in that um, workshop was this guy named Flint Sparks, and Flint I learned was a uh, a Zen priest and mm -hmm. also a psychologist, and also worked uh, like you in research for um, medicine and in the psychology side of the world, but also had a practice in uh, family therapist as as well. So really an amazing. He was my new Nancy. Yeah. And, and is my new Nancy. And so, he, and, and I, and what happened, I think this is a valuable story. I've told it before. Hopefully people tuning into this won't be bored to tears uh, <laughs> if they've heard it before, but I think it's such a valuable uh, story because it'll, it'll, it'll answer exactly what you're asking about. How do I approach things? Not only in this particular workshop, but this has now spilled over into my regular workshops as well. Maybe just not as intensely, uh, whereas, so let's address that quickly and just do a little curve here or swerve. So in a regular workshop, I see my job as trying to help those who choose to come along to find their voice, to, to, to help them achieve their vision. And we can talk about that in a little bit about. So what do they want their photography to look like? I am not a teacher. If you want to learn... Uh, 
you know, to how to do this shot and that shot. That's just not me. Mm-hmm. I want to help you create photographs that are yours. The photographs that make your heart sing. I want to help you to get to that place where you can recognize what's making you say, wow, and go, oh, that's what I need to make a picture of is wow, not of that mountain or not of that tree. But Mm -hmm. what is causing you to say, wow, stop, pay attention to that. And now let's make a photograph of that. So that's my job in my mind is to help them not tell them what they should. As a matter of fact, you'll never hear me say that word on a workshop or when I teach in any way, shape, or form. I will say, and this is totally from Nancy, might you consider Mm-hmm. Might you consider possibly moving this tree over to this side of your frame and allowing this to creep in? And then you tell me how that feels. That would be my style. It's not going to be, you should do this, you should do this. The rule says, I hate rules. I, they drive me crazy. <laughs> Who made the rules? Why do we believe them is where I come from. That's my quick thought on rules. Yeah. I understand that rules have come to a place where we we have value because the rule of thirds or putting things in certain positions stronger. Don't get me wrong. I That's true. But to go out with your thought saying, I'm going to go make an image based on rules makes no sense to me. Mm-hmm. I, want to base, I want to make images that are based on how I feel or what I connect to. Okay, so let's come back. So in general, a workshop is, yeah, you're coming and you're going to go to these places. We're going to shoot in the morning, shoot in the afternoon. But the focus of my teaching style is going to be helping you to create images that are uniquely yours, that are coming from the connections that you're having at that moment in time in the field. That's that part. The contemplative retreat, though, is still photography, but there's a much greater emphasis on how do we show up as a photographer? How do we come to the act of making images, or I would change that nowadays. This is a new epiphany for me. How do we come to the place of receiving images in our mm-hmm. life? Yeah, Because I don't think we, while we do have to have the, the creative stuff, that we do have to have the technical knowledge, what I've come to learn, and this is really from Ricky Cook and DeWitt Jones, who are two Nat Geo guys with you know 25 years each roughly, it being National Geographic photographers. And that's what I've learned from them is they're they're paying attention to that wow, the, what's taking them. Way more important to learn about what are you being taken by. And now, now the creative, now the technical can kick in so that I can choose a depth of field and that I can use a lens baby if I want to use a lens. All that stuff kicks in. But mm-hmm. the important part, so the retreat really focuses on we actually teach meditation. We actually meditate every morning uh, in a very gentle style for those who might be uncomfortable. It's it's not religious in, in any way, shape, or form. We've been very conscious not to do that. But we certainly believe that meditation is an important concept to learn. And you can practice that with prayer if that's what's comfortable with you or meditation or sitting in a chair. We're not making it uh, like a Zen retreat in any way, shape, or form, but certainly I mean, Flint is a a Zen priest, so he is going to bring those concepts, which people seem to connect with anyways very nicely. Mm -hmm. And so that, and then when we go out to photograph, we come back and we're having a, a, a much more intense dialogue about what happened. So what happened at this location? What was good? What were some of your challenges? What were some of your frustrations? Or what were, more importantly, what were your successes? How, how was that feeling? How was that landing And so our hope is to send people home from a retreat, and we use that word retreat again purposely to say, let's retreat from and come and arrive. We we invite them to arrive at the retreat in neutral, if you will. Mm -hmm. I, I don't have any intentions. I have no preconceived ideas of what I'm going to get out of this retreat. I'm just coming open, just like we're asking you to be as a photographer in the field, be open to being taken. So so what we're really giving you is those tools to be able to be open, because that's hard, right? Yeah. I don't know about you, Brenda, but we know each other a little bit, and we had a nice chance to chat a little bit. I don't shut up, right? I can talk forever. <laughs> <laughs> and I say that with laughter because people tell me it all the time. It's not news to me, Brenda, right? And so... 
but but seriously, being still for me is horrifically difficult. Yeah. Horrifically difficult. But I have learned how important that is. So yeah. I'm going to take a breath here because I know I'm just going way yeah, off no, the Yeah, no, this rails. is terrific. Yeah, no, this is great. <laughs> so um, I have lots of questions that, that okay. come out of this. But uh, one, I guess, that comes to mind right away is what is it that you're hoping people experience I, I, my first thought was going to be, what are you hoping to achieve with a meditation prior to going out in the field? And I feel like that's the wrong language to use. Um, what are you hope? What's the transition you hope people make mentally or emotionally through the practice of meditation before going out into the field? Oh, that's a great question, Brenda. I've not thought real deeply about that because I. it's interesting because I see the meditation as well, I guess that the answer is right in there, isn't it? It's it's essentially what we're trying to do. Ultimately, if you, it's interesting because if you look at the end, of, if you, the beginning of the work, uh, the retreat. Here I am using workshop. The beginning of the retreat, you know, there's anxiousness, just like even in a workshop, right? There's getting to know each other, and you, and we are asking you to be a lot more vulnerable. We have what we call porch circles. There's this beautiful open, three sided open porch that Ricky has built on the property there. And it's just spectacular location. You're on Molokai, Hawaii, for crying out loud. Yeah. It's fantastic, right? How do you keep your eyes closed? <laughs> yeah, you don't. <laughs> Actually, we do that in a yurt that's built just for meditation, so that helps. Yeah. But you do have all these great sounds. Um, and so that starts. But by the end of it, there's tears. People are sobbing, sharing their stories. Not that that's, you have to, right? Some people don't, but there is. there tends to be a fair amount of that. And why? Well, because people through this process of what it, whether it be meditation and also these porch sharing circles where there's an opportunity to be vulnerable with other people who are vulnerable with you, with other people who want to be there for the same reasons that you want to be there because they want to get deeper into this thing that they're doing, this creative uh, venue or creative um, choice in their life. And so what, what we're inviting them to do in the meditative part of it is to tap into the reality that in order to be able to connect more deeply, to see more deeply, going back to Freeman Patterson, the thing that he taught me about was to see more deeply. That And I was like, what do you mean see more deeply? We only just see. I was so literal, <laughs> you mm -hmm. know, in those days. And Freeman helped me to see that if I remove labels from things, you know, a tree is a triangle, a face is an oval, and start to use those as building blocks to build my images rather than saying it's good light, bad light, or that she's beautiful or she's ugly or he's beautiful. He's uh, That has nothing to do with it. Those are labels that get you in trouble. Mm -hmm. And so that meditation is kind of doing the same type of thing, right? We're trying to quiet the mind down so that we can be in a place where we can be taken, that we mm -hmm. can. And so it is hard. It's interesting to, to hear people's experiences because there's some who come who are very comfortable with meditation. They've already been doing it, right? right? And they assume the lotus position, which there's just no way I'm getting in a lotus position because <laughs> my legs don't work that way anymore. Right. I suppose I could. Maybe that should be a goal, Brenda. There you go. They, I probably could, but... Boy, it would be hard. Knees were beat up from skiing in Vermont, where you live. Right. Um, you know, but there's others who it, you could tell it's hard for them. And it is yeah. hard. But but Flint, who teaches it beautifully, he says, well, that's the whole point. It's practice, practice, practice. Exactly. So, so, and for the lifetime, right? It never stops. So meditation practice never stops. Right. And so it's just teaching to people to be in a place so that mentally they can be calm and open to what they're being taken by. Yeah, I I uh, meditate now. And when I first started it, it was at the recommendation of a friend of mine back when I was still doing science and, you know, working 60, 80 hour weeks, having panic attacks. You know, I was just, you know, high yeah. anxiety. And she was like, you know, you should really try a meditative or mindfulness practice. And she had recommended Headspace at the time. Yeah, excellent. And um, so that was sort of my my entry point. And I remember at that time it was two minutes was extremely painful. 
<laughs> I could not get my brain to like focus on my breath or anything for two minutes. It was remarkable. Um, and I actually gave up on it because at the time I was like, I don't have time for this. I'm too stressed out. Right. <laughs> the irony of that. Yeah. Oh my God. Yes, I don't have time for this. I'm too stressed out. Damn it. Yeah. I am. That's so funny. <laughs> but it's true. Right. It's Go ahead. True. Finish, please. Yeah. And so then after I resigned and started to take better care of myself, I, I revisited it and got up to the point where I could do the Headspace, which is like basically a guided mindfulness app. You know, sometimes yeah. meditation is such a broad term, but yeah. um, I could do 15 minutes and and be great. And it did yeah. make such a difference in turning those receptors on like you're talking about of uh, sort of getting out of your own way and being more in tune with your relationships with your surroundings you know it's sort of it's not just related to photography but it just does something to the chemistry in your brain somehow it seems that makes it so that you can be more observant more curious you know and and more receptive to these wow moments yeah wow well good for you for sticking it out because i when when flint said to us okay we're going to do 30 minute uh, meditation sessions. <laughs> I, I looked at him and I said, "Like, do I have to do that?" Right. <laughs> he says, "Yes, you're going to be in the yurt with us, and we're going to meditate together." I'm like, "Holy Ooh. cow, that's a long time!" Yeah. But you know, same same thing over time. That I'll never forget the first season of doing that, which would, would have been what 2015, 2015, I think was our first year there uh, doing it, and. It was just almost painful. It really was. It's yeah. just my mind was just. But now you, I look forward to it. It's a very different experience. And I want people listening to, again, I, you, I think, said it. I just want to echo that you know, medit the, we're talking about meditation in a very broad brush strokes here, right? Mm -hmm. And so, again, if meditation for you is just sitting out in your backyard where it's quiet and your eyes are open, that's fine, right? That's We're not inviting you to have to do something in a specific way. And right. if that, but generally what happens is people start to realize that, oh, this feels good to be disconnected from electronics and the phone and the screen and all the stuff, you know, then all of a sudden it's kind of becomes a natural place to be to maybe close your eyes and just start to listen and feel and hear. Yeah. Flint teaches a thing which is uh, very useful for guys like me who need help, and that is gap, grounded, aware, present. And I don't think it's mm -hmm. necessarily his thing. Mm -hmm. It's I think it's taught pretty basic stuff. But that's really what we're trying to – if we can get people from that meditation to just at least go home and in their mind, when they're in that place in the field what they're, where they're having these feelings, and I'm sure these are familiar to you, gosh, there's no pictures here. Mm -hmm. Why am I out today? I'm not in the mood to photograph. Why did I even come out today? All that stuff, right? right. Or, gosh, why is Brenda over there giggling and going, I love this, and I'm over here going, <laughs> what? <laughs> you know, there's right. nothing here, Brenda. What are you excited about? And then Brenda shows you and you go, crap, I'm just not in that space. Well, okay, if that's happening, if you can get back to saying – Ground yourself. Just remember, here I am. My two feet are planted on the earth, or I'm sitting down. I can feel the ground. I can be connected to that. I'm grounded. And then aware. I, are you aware? Like, in the exercise I go through, every time he says that, I've got my eyes closed. Am I aware of even who's sitting next to me in the circle right now? Hmm. And I remember early on going, no, I have no clue. So I was totally oblivious. Yeah. And that taught me so clearly that I'm not aware. I think I am, but I'm not even close to aware. Yeah. I'm not paying attention to everything that's going on around me. And then are you present? Are you are you in that moment or is your head thinking about the project that, you know, the lab mm -hmm. <laughs> that you've got to get done and the stress of that, right? And and so it would would it be okay if I circle back to Flint yeah. and how we connected? Absolutely. Would that be right? okay. Yeah, that'd be great. Because this is the really instructive part of the story. So here we were, and I'm teaching a more traditional workshop with, with DeWitt and Jonathan Kingston, another Nat Geo photographer that DeWitt had invited me to be part of. And here's Flint. And I met Flint on the lawn of this, this beautiful place where we meet. 
And he says, I'm really nervous about tonight. And I said, well, about what, Flint? And he says, well, we've got to show 10 images. John, I got a camera six months ago because DeWitt told me what to get. Because uh, he said, and then why don't you come to our workshop, see the light workshop? Well, I said, Flint, but this is not a competition. It's no big deal. Just we're sharing images so we can get to know each other. It's That's all it is. It's just a way to get to know each other and see how you see the world and how Mary sees the world and so forth. And, and so he says, okay, but I could tell he was really anxious. So we get to the images and two or three, four, whatever people go. And then up comes his first image of his 10. And Brenda, I went, huh? it was, it was amazing. Wow. The second image comes up, the whole group goes, huh? you could hear an audible. I mean, the air got sucked out of the room. It was such a loud <laughs> gasp. I'm serious. Wow. Yeah, wow. And and then the third one was even better. And I was like, what on earth is going on at the end of his 10 images? Yay, everybody's clapping like crazy. And I'm sitting there like stunned. Yeah. So I seriously was. So I go to bed and I went, what the heck happened? How is that possible in six months? Flint is making these insanely beautiful images of... A lot of them were not straight in nature at all. They were a gentleman, an elderly gentleman, hand on his back, front hand leaning down towards a kitty cat, and the perfect moment of gesture and connection. Huh. Perfect. Wow. Of him like almost touching the cat, and he's in this very gentlemanly pose, and it was just insane. It was just incredible. And so then we get to the porch turning session, and he goes, John, uh, he always goes, hand up. Yes, Flint. That reminds me of a poem from Mary Oliver. And he just recites it off the top wow. of his head. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, what's going on here? Yeah. And then he would, and at this point, I don't know he's a psychologist by training. I don't know he's a Zen priest. I don't know any of the stuff about him. Right. And so long story, a tad bit shorter, because again, I like to talk. <laughs> yeah. um, but hopefully it's entertaining. It so is. three days later, I wake up in the middle of the night after being with him, this amazing man, and just pearls of incredible wisdom during these portion sessions, deep, deep stuff, poetry, deep thinking. And I wake up and I run to him the next morning, find him by himself, and I shake him by his shirt collar. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, we need to do a workshop together. I know why. And he goes, why what? Yeah. <laughs> He's like, he had no idea. I'm like, I, and I've given him no context whatsoever. I <laughs> said, guy. Flint, I know. I, I, <laughs> Thankfully, he's great. Yeah. And, and so I said to him this, and this was the whole deal. I said, Flint, I know why your 10 images were phenomenal. I know why you're such a great photographer already. I know. And I need that. <laughs> <laughs> I did. That's exactly. This is all about me, Brenda. It wasn't about anybody else. I said, I need that. And so do a million other people, Flint. He says, what are you asking? I said, well, we're going to do a, we're going to do a workshop and you're going to teach people how to be you <laughs> and I'll teach people how to use a camera. And I said, because what you've done is you've come to the act of photography prepared in a way that's incredibly different from anybody else that picks up a camera. You came to photography as a Zen priest, or let's get rid of that. You came as a photog to photography as a human who is incredibly grounded, incredibly aware, and present in everything. So when you watch him with a camera, he's not chasing ever. I've never yeah. seen that intention on Flint whenever I've been around him. Rather, he's more like this, just kind of got his arms crossed, happens to have a camera dangling from his wrist, and he's just paying attention. He's looking around, just, want, oh, isn't that a lovely interaction, you know, yeah. or, oh, what's it, right? And then all of a sudden he goes, and then he picks up the camera and he goes, click, and it's like, great, right? And so, So that's what the epiphany was for me that night was, that's what people need to hear. We need to stop. It's important to talk about f-stops and shutter speeds and all that stuff, right? Yeah. And it's important to know how to organize a frame and comp. All that stuff's very important. But what's way more important to me now and what I want, that message I'm trying to get across is this stuff. This stuff is way more important because if we can um, 
if we can arrive to photograph in that place, the opportunities are just off the charts. Because mm-hmm. now we're not worrying about whether it's a good or bad photograph. We're just worried about that connection that's happening. And are we capturing that wow or that moment of perception or whatever turns our head, whatever you want to call that, are we capturing that? And, and if we can do that, our photography is going to go through the roof because now it's going to be very personal. It's right. going to be much more vulnerable and intimate. And it's going to be a reflection of you as a human being and what you and your life and everything you've read and watched and learned and studied and lived is coming out through your photographs. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I I think that that uh, gap phrasing that you had, the grounded, aware, present is a great summary of something that I've been trying to teach, um, which I think is a similar concept. And that is this subtle difference between looking and seeing and hearing versus listening or taking versus making, you know, all those things and, and trying to figure out how to nuance that out is, is uh, sometimes challenging, but I think you're nailing it on the head with that, those concepts of these are basically the three things that you need to be doing in order to see something deeply, like you were saying earlier, or to uh, really, you know, the act of listening is so much, is so different than hearing something even though it's the same anatomy <laughs> and, you no, know. No, but it's, they're night and day. Right. They're night and day. Yeah, yeah. I mean, husbands are, have been accused, and probably rightly so, of not listening, just hearing. Right. right? <laughs> I mean, I'm trying to be funny here, but, yeah. but, it, but, it, but I mean, I've been married for 40 years. And so, yes, I mean, I've, there's no question I find my times, at times, you're just, you're not, you're hearing. You're, you're not, you're hearing your kids you're hearing your wife, you're not deeply listening to and reflecting back to them, you know, what you're hearing. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, so same thing with seeing deeply is you can superficially be glancing and, and at this beautiful, whatever landscape scene, but are you seeing the intricacies of that scene? Are you seeing line? Are you seeing shape? Are you seeing shadow, depth, all these things, which are way beyond just what we grasp in a instant, right? Right. Where we're just casually glancing at something. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And Freeman talks about the idea of seeing deeply is, is using all of our senses too. So back to, back to uh, mindfulness and meditation, you know, in meditation, you're learning about, you know, what you're hearing, what you're smelling, all those senses are involved in meditation. Right. So the same thing when, as we become better photographers, as we in, in engage all of our senses. That's what Freeman is talking about. That allows us to see more deeply. And I can hear some people going, what? You know, how does smell and taste? It's huge. When again, when you think about it, if you're out in that outdoors, as we're talking about landscape primarily here, and you're, and when I look at certain images, I've just had a blast in Acadia, you know, I can smell that moment when I see that image on my screen at home. Right. That was all very much part of that experience. Yeah. Yeah. So in terms of contemplative photography and what you were saying about earlier about, you know, who we are and who we, who we're bringing to the table when we are going out to do photography sort of informs our photography in a way Mm -hmm. that could be both from the subjects that we're drawn to or how we choose to photograph it. But sometimes I wonder, can it go both ways? Do you think, do you think that our images can actually reflect back to us who we are in those moments? Yeah, well, and help let's us understand. Free- yeah, yeah help us understand ourselves better. Absolutely, yes. Um, so Freeman talks about the fact that camera points both ways, mm-hmm. right? Okay. So we we are looking through the camera and we're seeing what we see, but we're all it's also pointing back at us and the light that we're shining on it. So yes, and and he. I'll use a story that he talks about. He he has this obsession with photographing circles, if you will, or balls. It was actually more like balls. And whether that be a boulder on a beach or whether that be a bush that looked like a ball. Mm-hmm. And he had to start thinking and thinking about what the heck is this obsession? He started <laughs> looking through. He didn't have Lightroom at the time, probably still doesn't knowing Freeman. And 
And he started to say, what does this mean? And Freeman, also a very deep thinker, probably one of the better writers about photography in a very deep sense. That's what I love about Freeman. He's a really great photographer, but he's probably a better writer. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why I love him to death. And so he finally realized that, oh, these have to do with a connection to my childhood. Hmm. And I wish I could remember, and I'm kind of ruining the punchline here a little bit, but I I can't remember the real depth of what that was. But it had to do with something in his childhood, something that was in his yard, right, that was circular, sphere-like, ball, whatever. And he realized that's what was going on was this connection to his childhood and that that was being played out in what he was being drawn to. So these subjects were pulling him. And the reason, another good one, uh, actually just thought of this, this is an excellent one. So Bill Strom, who was my first assistant when I was doing workshops, he also passed due to uh, melanoma cancer. And it went pretty quickly, as melanoma can do. And so he came to be with me. I invited him to just come to the house. My wife had gone out on a trip somewhere. Uh, for a few days, I said, Bill, come stay with me. And all of a sudden, he was photographing. This was fall, October. It was two months before he died. But he was really doing well at that time. And he started breaking leaves because he saw kind of a broken, crisp leaf. And then he saw one in the field with color underneath it. And he went, oh, that's cool. And so he started breaking them and creating patterns with the leaves hmm. and then finding colorful leaves and putting them under it. Oh, neat. And he's a macro guy, too. And they were brilliant. It was a brilliant series. Uh, and then uh, Jim uh, Ritchie, a mutual friend of ours and a physician who's got MS, he took a look at those and he says, Bill, you do know these are self-portraits, right? Hmm. And, of course, Bill, he starts sobbing. Yeah. Just sobbing. And Bill was a very hard New Yorker. I'd never seen him cry in my life. And he's sobbing. And I said, what's that all about? He says, Dr. Ritchie is correct. These are self-portraits. It was his broken body. Yeah. He's two months away from death. Right. With life behind it, with color. Wow. Still wanting. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It was, a. I mean, I got goosebumps right now thinking about that. Yeah. But so you talk about, you know, being that the, you know, when you're at that level of photography where you're allowing that to happen, that's right. pretty deep stuff. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, wow. those thank are my you for thoughts. sharing that. Yeah. Yep. So, I've heard you quote Ansel Adams, who says that the who said that the way to art is through craft, not around yeah. it. Yeah. So, do you think photographers need to master technique or master themselves first in order to create expressive images? Gosh, this sounds like a conversation Cole Thompson and I have all the time. So Cole and I, Cole and I have also become good friends, and uh, we'll be doing joint things together out out at the out of Chicago thing in Death Valley, which oh, we're nice. looking forward to here. And and he and I do workshops together in Death Valley. We're doing that before we do out of Chicago. And and he and I have been to the Pharaohs and uh, some other things. And so this is an ongoing discussion because because if you don't, do you know Cole's work at all? I do. Yep. Yeah. And his celibacy uh, approach, right? Yeah. So he would argue that, you know, just give a person a camera and just let them go create. Don't teach them anything. They'll figure it all out on their own. And I come from a slightly different, I I say, you know, so basically let's relate that to to English. So in English, are you going to just say, go write a book? Right. Right. And, And so, and he would say, yes, and they'll figure it out. Well, and I say, but let's give them a shortcut. Right. <laughs> you know, let's yeah. at least give them some guidelines. Again, maybe not rules, but some guidelines. So so to answer your question, I think, we, and this is the way I say it in one of my lectures, I want to teach craft and I want people to know craft so much or, or in depth enough that they can let it get out of the way of the creative process. Mm-hmm. So in other words, let's simplify you know, that, that inevitable person comes on a workshop and they've got a new camera and they've not looked at their manual. It's going to be a horrible workshop. It just is. Because yeah. they're going to be so immersed in that camera and reading the manual that it's going to get in the way of that creative possibility. Mm-hmm. So I think we do need to know craft 
to the point where it is getting out of the way. And that doesn't mean we need to know all of it because we're not going to know all of it. But we need to know enough about depth of fields primarily, what an f-stop does, what a what a you know shutter speed in relation to f-stop and how does ISO, those you know that that triangle of exposure and things like that and maybe maybe have some guidelines about what might make an image stronger or something else. And that at least gives us a platform then to allow bringing ourselves because I think although you know the argument from <laughs> from that I just shared with um, Flint kind of flies in the face of that doesn't it because that's exactly what happened he prepared and did all that work first somebody gave him a camera and my gosh he created beautiful images so that sort of supports Cole's idea but I think Flint is an unusual and anomaly right I don't I think asking people to spend 10 years meditating, right, and then getting to that point of enlightenment is maybe a stretch. Mm -hmm. So I think in the audience that we're trying to reach here, it's it's more of a possibly a casual photographer, intermediate, or maybe even advanced photographers listening. And so understanding craft shop gets out of the way seems to make more sense to me. And then helping them understand just how important this more the deeper gap stuff, bringing ourselves to it. Um, and then going back to Ansel, who also said, you know, you bring to the act of photography, all the books you've read, the movies you've seen, the, you know, the interactions you have, the people you love, yada, 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 right? And right. that's really true. Ernst Toss said, you know, basically paraphrasing that, that your photography is just a reflection of who you are. Mm-hmm. Jay Mizell said something more snarky because Jay Mizell is snarky. Somebody <laughs> said to him, they, they said, because he's a New Yorker, he says, uh, oh, no, somebody in the audience says, well, how do I make more interesting photographs? And Jay, without missing a beat, said, become a more interesting human being. Right. <laughs> but he's right, right? I mean, yeah. As snarky as that was and kind of off the cuff. When you sit back and reflect on that, that's exactly right. Right. You know, study more, uh, read more interesting books, read literature, read, um, uh, you know, classics, if you will, or study art, study different forms of art. Um, uh, go to uh, the uh, Broadway shows, go to opera, all that stuff, right, now starts to inform your creativity in whatever that genre is, whether it be photography here right. or whatever. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's a cultivation and you're, Good you're, word. you're, yeah, Good word. providing nutrients to, to that part yes. of your brain is the way I like Good to think word. about it. Yeah. yeah. Thank so you, you Brenda. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you and I have a background in uh, music. Yours is more extensive than mine, but I grew up, my mom's a piano teacher. And so I grew up p- playing the piano and my main instrument became the trumpet, uh, which I also understand that you, you are a trumpet player. Uh, so that's exciting to have this that connection. This is exciting. <laughs> yes. Um, in fact, I have my, my trumpet over there in, in my office. I just haven't I haven't played it in a really long time. But one thing that, um, you know, speaking about how these other forms of creativity can inform our photography. One thing that when I, you know, and I'm obviously photography is a lifelong process. And so I'm still learning a lot about it in my own work. But I've always had this struggle between doing the technical side, feeling that I can handle that really well so that I can move on to the more creative side and sometimes getting frustrated with that because, you know, it's so easy to get really hung up on the technical side of photography because there's so much to it. But then when I take a step back and I think about how I learned music, you know, I spent hours a day playing scales, playing exercises, you know, repeated, you know, learning how to do, uh, you know, triplets, all, triplet, yeah, all the things, right? <laughs> yeah. How to breathe better when, you know, all those things. and that was technique and it you know until you mastered that you weren't going to make music nope. right and so it, it i do think it's important when i when i stop and think about that like okay when i was playing trumpet i practiced for at least an hour every day i'm not practicing photography for an hour every day right now <laughs> you know but why not why am i not doing that you know and so i, I think it's a good question and, and something that shouldn't be overlooked when people are learning photography Another thing that uh, music has helped give me some insight into is is the thought about composition, you know, so for with composition, throwing out the rules and being more emotive or more expressive in your photography. And how does that fit into how our brains work to perceive information is also this 
push-pull interaction between structure and creativity or, you know, um, geometry and emoting and sensing in an image. But when you look at music, you know, we have measures, we have time signatures, Mm -hmm. key signatures, there's a melody, there's something there that's somewhat expected as the music starts to play. And that makes it easy to interpret or more enjoyable to listen to, even if it's challenging us in that interpretation. And so this role of structure or how to balance, you know, structure with creativity, I'm, I'm curious, what, how do you integrate those two in your own work? Yeah, man, that's good stuff. I, I, I can't wait to listen back to what you just said, because I think that was really excellent. Um, and it's interesting. There's a number of musicians that are photographers, Brenda, I'm, I've learned, or psychologists for whatever that reason is. Uh, Tony Sweet, who's one of my early teachers and a brilliant artist. Tony's an artist. He's not a photographer. I mean, he happens to use photography, but Tony is very talented drummer, a jazz drummer, no less. Wow. So when you hear him talk about photography, you know, it's just, it's, he's riffing, he's improving, right? And, yeah. and so music very much has influenced Ansel Adams, pianist. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, Oh, who's the other guy? Uh, anyways, there's a number of people who have brought music in into their creative or into their photographic journey. Maybe is a better way to put it. Mm-hmm. So I, you're right. I, I mean, you've got my mind spinning actually because I'm thinking about the structure that you were talking about with regard to you know the measures and what time signature you're in and all those things. But yet, what was going through my mind as you were talking about that was Tony and was jazz specifically. Because if all of a sudden we're into fusion, jazz, fusion, you know, it's a very different sound and can sometimes be, you know, kind of going against your better senses there and almost making you wince a little bit because you're on the edge of discord, right? Yeah. Um, But it still works for some reason, right? And so they're stretching the boundaries of the rules, if you will. But certainly the, you know, music to me, there's such a strong parallel between the two because, and, and I'm glad you've basically given me new, new arguments for Cole <laughs> because that's <laughs> which is really good news because <laughs> I'm always looking to win that argument and I don't think that there's a win or a lose, but, yeah. but it's true. I mean, that, that structure is so important to learn that. And man, I did the same thing. I, re, I, I practice a half hour. You were much more diligent than I, because it drove, I mean, but you know, I played tuba, trumpet, baritone, horn, playing the Dixieland band professionally oh, nice. for a while yeah. with the tuba and uh, actually you know who Maynard Ferguson is yes yeah of course of course well yeah. if you look at, at the last album that he ever made was done two weeks before he died oh wow and then I had made images of Maynard at a concert about eight months before that and I never got around to processing them and I finally did and I put it up on a website then on August the 23rd of 2005, Maynard died that night. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, this is a story I tell in my Dream, Believe, Create lecture, and I show the images. And so it just devastated me because he was my idol. I mean, yeah. Maynard was the man and still is as far as I'm concerned with regard to trumpet. And so, uh, and I know I'm diverting, sorry, but it's a fun story again. So anyways, um, I had made images in November at the local high school here in Pennsylvania where I live. And it was my very first digital camera. So I didn't know how to process a raw file. And when I finally did, I put it up on this photo sharing site called photo.net. We didn't have Instagram and Facebook back then. And Jeff Jeff, uh, Lashway, his piano player, got on and said, that's one of the finest images I've ever seen of my boss and my dear friend who passed away last night. Oh my gosh. I was like blown Whoa. away. Yeah. Well, I got a hold of Ed Sargent, who's the tour manager for Maynard. I looked up on the albums. I just opened an album cover up and found it. And I said, I've got some images that the Maynard, Maynard's family might enjoy. Sent the images to the family. Two months later, I got a call that said, hey, John, we'd like to use your image for the cover of Maynard's last album. So if you oh look at the one and only Maynard Ferguson, that's my photograph on the cover of that album. 
Wow. So you and I are now bonded forever, Brenda. <laughs> yes. We are now best friends because you're a trumpet player. I'm a trumpet player. And we've got this Maynard story that we can revel in. I love it's it. Cool, I, right? It's cool, right? I so mean, I'm I've got goosebumps. Yeah. Yeah, good. I'm way off track here. So you were talking about, <laughs> go back to the question, because it was valid, and I want to try to do my best here. So the, the end result of the music and, and talking about measure and structure and all that stuff, the question became, how do you tie those two together? You know, thinking okay. in, in terms of form and structure to have have something of substance in the composition, but how does that get integrated with pushing the bounds of 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 structure and compos uh, of yeah. structure so that you can be more creative? Or do we not need to push the bounds? Maybe. Yeah, boy, that that's a lot to think about. I'm, I don't know if I have a, a, a really good, solid answer for that, because that's that's something I think I need to give a little bit more thought to. But the only guts that I'm feeling right now are that, back to my comment of, we need to have enough of that knowledge of structure, of measures, of time signature, of what an eighth note is, you know, if we're kind of doing that parallel, so the, and then practice that to the and you're right practice I, I give a funny little slide in in one of my presentations where I talk about so how do we do all this while well, we practice 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 because and I talk about the fact that you go out and buy a trumpet or a guitar and you say I'm going to practice an hour every month and everybody laughs because you know that you're not going to make any progress right. yet we go out and spend all that money on camera gear and we practice four times a year and we wonder why we're not getting better yeah. so practice is really really critical and I let them off the hook and I say practice can be what we're doing and mm -hmm. people listening to hopefully what we have to say today that's practice yeah practice is getting in front of Lightroom and critically evaluating your images for what the composition is uh, why why one appeals to you more than another one what the light is doing and how and why do we like the light in this take versus this take when when it was just soft light versus this one had hard light and how do we feel about that mm -hmm. so that can be practiced it doesn't there's nothing that's going to replace being in the field practicing nothing yeah. and so we also have a, this thing called a camera that actually has a phone in it it's unbelievable seriously i think i have one right here it's it's this look it's 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 a camera it's a really really good camera and they have they make phone calls Brenda. it's unbelievable it's called an eye camera and uh oh no they called it an iphone i think that's a misnomer because it's a really great camera with yeah. a phone in it it's incredible <laughs> so um but seriously we have that with us everywhere we go we can make photographs all day long with this neat little cellular device so we do need to practice 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 so that it gets out of the way of that opportunity to then take the same pra ah epiphany just happened then to take the same practice and i think that that's the key word that i think i'm getting out of this little discussion practice both in the technical compositional uh side of the world but also you have to practice gap grounded, aware, present. You have to practice that side of the world where you can come open, mm -hmm. I love come that. in neutral, come to where you can be. And so that stuff gets out of the way. Here I am, I'm open. And, and, and back to your first question of this interview, which, is the, which was really important, is you know the, that person coming to this and saying, oh, gosh, you know, this is hard. How do I do this? Can I do it? photography, right? Well, let me just give all of you this. I am blessed to be able to be in a group circle thinking with this guy named Ricky Cook. And Ricky Cook is a 22-year Nat Geo. It's his property along with his wife that we do the contemplative photography retreat. Ricky has journals that are probably two feet high from when he was a Nat Geo photographer. And he would go to India for whatever, two, three months at a time, and he would journal his ideas, his concepts, I mean, deep thinking about how that story was going to play. And now when we're in that circle, now he's whatever, mid-70s, and he sits there and he says to this group of people that we bring there to this retreat, he says, still the most important thing to me, John, and group, is how do I show up to photograph? That's what I'm interested in. What's going on before I trip the shutter, as Ricky would say? Mm -hmm. that's what's most important to Ricky. 
Hello, 22-year Nat Geo guy. And at this point in his life, his senior years, that's still the most important thing to him. That speaks volumes. So those new people listening, that's what you should be focusing on, right? Learn that technical stuff. Learn the measure. Learn what key signature we're in. Learn how to play those notes. Do Do the triplets, which is using your tongue in a really hard way to make those things happen on a trumpet or a brass instrument or a woodwind, whatever it is. Those are hard to do. Or if you're a drummer, it's hard to get those wrists and that action. And that's what you're practicing doing. So that's what you're doing with your photography so that you can do what Ricky's inviting us to do, and that is show up in neutral. Right. That's hard. I mean, you were talking about it before. You had that part of your life, Brenda, where you're talking about you're just stressed and anxiety. Well, crap. How do you then go, okay, I'm going out for the the weekend to do photographs and turn that off. Right. Flip the switch. That's horribly hard. (laughs) Yes, it is. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I love like when I'm listening to what you're saying, I, I started to think about, okay, we, we often think of photography as a craft or as an art form. Uh, maybe it should just be thought of as a practice. I love that. Flint would agree with that 100%. Because that's what it is. We're constantly... Pra- and, you know, back to the, the funny Jay Mizell, you know, about being a better human being or a more interesting person... I, I've come to understand, and it's my newest lecture, which is Through the Lens of Love is the title. Yeah. And I and I was told I should never use it. And I said, no, I have to, because that's how I feel. Yeah. That's where I have come to in all these years and studying with the Flints and the Nancys and Rickies and DeWitts and so forth and Freeman is to understand that that's where my head is. I want to photograph through the lens of love. What am I falling in love with? What do I love? What makes my heart sing? And and if I focus on that, I've learned I'll be just fine. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. Through it's that so... lens. And I and I start off by saying, do you do you photograph through the lens of acceptance? likes do you for to do through a literal lens do you focus through the lens of a telephoto lens because you like to compress thing do you like to do wide angle because you like that i mean so there's all sorts of ways of lenses as i'm using the term loosely to look through mm-hmm. you know, how do you look through your life what lens that way and then i whittle it down to how do you look through or what rather what lens do you look through for your photography right and then I get to mine is through the lens of love. If I, it's just what I love, whether that's a beautiful dandelion that's got dew on it, I'm in love. So I'm okay with that. It doesn't make me squirm in any way, shape or form. And I just don't care if somebody thinks I'm kind of weird, (laughs) you know, for falling (laughs) in love with stuff. I just don't care. I really don't because I've fallen in love. I really have. I mean, and I, oh my gosh, look at that sky. It's insane. I'm in love with that sky. That's what I realize is happening to me. Yeah. I'm falling in love. And so that's the lens I choose to photograph through. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Thank you for sharing that. And for all of your thoughts, this has been a wonderful conversation. Before we wrap things up, I was wondering if you'd be up for doing a lightning round. Oh, my gosh. I love lightning rounds. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> Said no one. <laughs> now, hold on. Let me check my armpits. Right. Oh, I'm sweating. I'm sweating now. Okay, lightning round. I'm going to close my eyes. There you oh, go. Can I meditate first? Yeah, there you go. The listeners the listeners love it. So okay, um, we'll start off with one that you've already sort of talked about, and that is, what makes your heart sing? Oh, I photograph what makes my heart sing, but what makes my heart sing deeply is my family, my grandchildren, my children. That's what makes my heart sing. Yeah, that's great. What's one piece of gear you can't live without that's not your camera, lenses, or tripod? Oh, crap. (laughs) (laughs) Now I'm really sweating. What is one piece of gear? My mind. Ooh. That is a good one. My mind. I can't live without me. You know, and <laughs> at 60, almost five, I'm starting to question my mind. No. <laughs> yeah. uh, let me tell you what. I forget things more often than not, but that's not what I'm talking about. But yeah. no, bringing that, bringing my mind and my feelings and myself to that act of photography. I can't live without that. Yeah. That's what it's all about. Matter of fact, I could live without the gear and just bring me and photograph neurochromes yes. with my eyes. Yeah. Yeah, that is great. That okay, is great. again, my answers are way too long. No, this, this is, is perfect. To be lightning. This is perfect. Okay, John, shut up. Okay, okay. what are you, what are you reading right now? 
What am I? Oh, um, Steve Van Zant's autobiography. Steve Van Zant is the uh, sidekick to Bruce Springsteen. Yeah. Who is some of the greatest writing and and composing and arranging. He's a brilliant human being. And he happens to be Miami Steve Van Zant. He was in, uh, what's the series he was in? It was a huge um, uh, mafia-based series on television. Oh, uh, the Sopranos. Yeah, Sopranos. <laughs> he ended up being in Sopranos. He wrote. He wrote and produced Lillehammer later on, and he was incredibly involved in in politics. As a matter of fact, to getting apartheid. That whole thing was something I'm just reading about in the chapters now. Wow. But a fascinating, fascinating book about a fascinating man, Miami Steve Van Zandt. All right. Well, we will link it in the show notes if anyone's interested in checking that yeah. out. Uh, so, why do you photograph, and has that changed over time? No, it's actually just gotten stronger. I photograph because it feeds my soul. Love that. Um, okay, final question. What does connecting with nature mean to you? Peace, solitude. Um, that connection is there's just, it's my ability to just get rid of everything else that's going on and just be present. I can be present better in nature than anywhere else mm-hmm. i stink at it at home i stink at it in most places i'm it's a it's something that i need lots of practice with and that's why i said to flint that day that i was shaking him by his shirt and holding him and he's going what the heck are you doing i knew and i was sincere i said i need you i need this in my life because i know i stink at it yeah. and so nature does that for me nature just automatically boy and and especially now that i've gotten to a place where i'm not chasing anymore I'm not worried about people liking my work. I'm human. When they like it, I like it. Don't get me wrong. But I put my uh, two pictures ago on Instagram, I knew it was not going to be well received. I still put it up because I love it, right? But I knew it wouldn't get it. And it didn't. Right. But I don't care. I wanted to share my heart. Yeah. Right. But so nature does that for me. It gets me in that place where I just don't care about what's going on in the world. I can be just connected. It's therapeutic. I know, you know, TJ Thorne talks about it. Dave Johnston talks. I mean, there's, I love that there's a bigger conversation in our community, specifically landscape photographers who are uh, Alistair Ben, who I adore. He, they're all talking about how therapeutic um, landscape photography is and how that's really why they're doing it is for that, that therapy to fight alcoholism or depression or whatever and if that's what we can be doing with this thing called landscape photography that's cool really cool absolutely yeah yeah couldn't agree more well john this has been absolutely fabulous thank you so much for for making the time and sharing so openly and vulnerably to everyone here and your story and your inspiration and how you find creativity and all that i know it's going to make a be really enlightening for some people so thank you I'm happy to have come and thank you for allowing me to be here and inviting me. All right. I hope you enjoyed that interview with John Barclay and be sure to check out his website at johnbarclayphotography.com to see his photos and learn more about his workshops and other educational offerings. Again, thank you, John, for coming on the show. And thank you, dear listener, for sharing a part of your day with me. I appreciate you, and I hope you got a lot of value out of today's episode. One of my aha moments in this conversation with John was thinking about photography as a practice rather than as a craft or as an art. And this makes a lot of sense to me, and it inspired the first Tidbit Tuesday episode of 2022, which was episode 40 called The One Thing That Will Improve Your Photography This Year. And if you haven't listened to it yet, I encourage you to check it out. And I'll be sharing more ideas around this concept of practice in the coming months. In the meantime, I'll be back here next week with a practical Tidbit Tuesday episode. And if you have a photography or outdoor question you'd like me to answer on the podcast, just click the link in the show notes and you'll be able to record your short message. And until then, get outside, my friends, and find yourself a little nature. Take care.